Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right. Hello, everyone. So welcome to Dealmakers. So today I have a very special guest who I consider as well a, a, a good friend, and uh, Carlos Reynes. He is uh, one of the co-founders behind Rubicon and is one of the leading companies right now in the healthcare space. So, so I was very excited to have Carlos. So Carlos, welcome on board here. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Very excited to be part of this. So tell me how, how you got started with the company. Sure. So I guess I've, uh, I'll start by saying I've always been super passionate about the, um, this topic of um, technology applied to healthcare. Um, it's uh, I went through some uh, tough family experiences, which um, helped me understand the impact that someone can have over um, a person's quality of life through a technology intervention. And uh, I've been following this path, went on to become a biomedical engineer, work in health IT for a few years. And then it was really in um, in 2012. I was um, in Boston for um, for business school, and I uh, started going to a lot of um, entrepreneurship events. And in one of those, um, I met uh, my co-founder. It was uh, this was March of 2013 when we met. It was at a um, hackathon um, at MIT. It was called Hack in Medicine, and um, and uh, my co-founder Gil Ada was pitching the idea. And this was um, right in line with the work I had been doing around technology applied to healthcare and improving access for um, for patients. And uh, we started. We met over that weekend, worked through the weekend, um, had a follow up meeting um, shortly after that, then uh, did another um, startup weekend a month later where we won best pitch, and uh, that sort of pushed me in this direction where I was uh, in the middle of recruiting for a summer internship, canceled everything. Moved to New York that summer and started working together, and that's um, that's how we got started. Nice. So you were actually working on this while you were still in in business school. So where where did you get hours to 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 be able to to do something about this? Because I mean, it's quite demanding when you go to one of these Ivy League schools. Yeah, it was uh, it was very hard. I uh, we started it uh, through the first year, and I continued doing it through the second year of business school. And um, I would go to class every morning, always underprepared because I had never read my cases or done all the all the homework. And then I would spend the entire afternoon working on the business to find myself almost every day at midnight having to read cases and prep for the following day. Um, some days I would 
drive from um, Boston to New York to meet with investors. We were uh, in the process of raising our uh, seed round at the time. It was very tough. I remember when we were graduating from school and everybody was sad that they had to go back to real life, go back to work. I was the happiest person because I could <laughs> finally focus on the business 100%. That's amazing. I still remember those early days, uh, you know, when we met, I think it was back in 2014, no, or, or 2013, when you guys were getting started and, and just out of school. I mean, it's amazing how, how time flies and, and the accomplishments that you guys have been able to, to get. So yeah, kudos to that. So I guess, I guess when you were meeting your co-founder in this case, like, what, what led you to believe that that was going to be a good marriage? I mean, Were there like certain qualities that he had that you thought that, you know, could really make this journey be, you know, like more interesting or, or what was there when you initially thought about potentially going at it with, with your co-founder? I think, uh, I think it was a, a process. So we, um, we met that weekend over that, um, hackathon and, uh, we actually worked pretty well together over those, um, um, those few days. And then we had a couple follow-up sessions. Um, I remember one of those uh, early sessions. We uh, we went to grab dinner with each other, and we both brought our significant other to the dinner. And it was this mutual vetting of each other, um, right. trying to get to know each other. We um, we used to say that we dated for a while before things got serious. Uh, we had to go away from that analogy because people thought we were really dating. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but uh, it was a process where we um we were getting to know each other um you know starting to um understand um what are our working styles what's our commitment is right. this person will it be easy to work with this person are we aligned in the vision do we share the same values do we um are we committed to start doing this and you know for any foreseeable future go unpaid go through the challenges and everything and. I guess we were incredibly lucky to have found each other at a hackathon because there, there are two things that are pretty interesting. One is that we share very similar background. Um, we're both biomedical engineers and we both graduated from um, business school, but we have very different styles, very complementary. And um, I think I, I like the, the way Gil's wife uh, puts it. She says that she's never seen two people disagree in a way that's more constructive than what we yeah. do. And um, I think five years into the business, um, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that we uh, got to meet each other because we have a really good working relationship. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, so talking about the business itself, so how has the business, I would say, evolved uh, over time? I mean, from that initial concept that you had and, and what, the, what, what is the business today? So the, the business in, in simple terms, it is um, a platform that allows primary care providers to submit consults to top specialists across the country, whatever they have a question on a difficult case, and they hear back within a few hours. And based on that input from the specialist, the primary care provider can make much more informed decisions on their patient's um, diagnosis or treatment plan. And... It really started off as, um, as a solution for providers. There are many, many tech um, platforms that are patient-facing, all these telemedicine um, applications, but there is almost nobody doing innovation for primary care providers. So that's, that's the, the niche that, that, that we took on. Um, 
And five years later, with the business still the same, um, connecting primary care providers to specialists, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the tweaks that we've had to do to the model are around the complexity of rolling this out in a market that's incredibly complex and incredibly fragmented, where in most of these situations, the um, the primary use of, user of technology, the, the primary care provider, it's um, it's not the payer because the um, the insurance companies are typically the ones that hold um, financial risk for the total cost of care for the patient. So we've had to navigate um, that, um, that that setting where it's a B2B business with a third party, and then you have to do an engagement with a clinic, which is, again, a B2B type of uh, relationship. And then you need to bring the clinicians on board, which are um, our end users. Got it, got it. And just like out of curiosity, like for those that are listening now and, you know, that are also dealing with, with what could be, you know, sales cycles that are a little bit more on the longer end. I mean, what kind of tip would you, would you have for them? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think that's um, in particular for health IT, I think that's the ultimate example of an industry with a really long sales cycle. And the larger the organization, the longer the sales cycle, you need to have um, a lot of balls in the air because some of these deals will go on hold for six months and for any of these systems, that's fine. <laughs> They'll yeah. tell you, we're really excited. We're definitely going to move forward. Uh, let's want to have a follow-up in six months. And, you know, I'm, I'm left there thinking six months is half, it's this lifetime for us. <laughs> totally. uh, we need to totally. move faster. So I think you need to have, um, if you're going to enter um, big deals with big corporations, hospitals, health plans, you need to have the, um, the cushion to, you know, be able to plan, you need to have the funds to plan for what could be a 12 to 18 months uh, sales cycle and followed by also an intensive uh, implementation um, timeframe. Um, the good news is that once these um, systems are on board, they're also very, it gets very sticky. So it's hard to bring them on board, but once you have them, they, they stay with you. So um, turn is much lower um, than you would see in other industries. In fact, we, we, we see negative turn for our business. Got it, got it. Well, that's pretty cool. So I guess like now moving into the um, into the actual, uh, you know, financing aspects of the of the business. So how, how did you, how have you, um, you know, really valued the business? And, and like when you were going out and you were in the middle of, of, of the financing round, so how was the business valued in those different rounds? And, and you know, how, how have things changed from the last round that you did to, let's say, you know, for example, the seed round that you did, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, I, I, I believe in total you guys have raised 20 million. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We've uh, done uh, just under 20 million over three rounds of, um, of funding. Um, very different ways to value the company depending on the round. Um, when we, you've, you've alluded before, uh, the first time we met was uh, right about the time we were doing our seed round. Um, at that time, we had an idea we had a first version of a product and we were just starting to go to market so um as you know many people do the first round we did it on a convertible note um just the easiest way you don't have to spend all that time trying to negotiate or, or, or figure out the value of the business when you don't have any um any reliable metrics to uh, to rely on yeah. um so we did a convertible note with you know pretty standard um um valuation cap, uh, 20% discount. Um, and 
that was her first, that was her seed round. We um, did about um, 1.3 million, and then a couple of years later, we did our Series A, um, four million dollar round. At that time, we had um, penetrated a few markets. Um, we were, um, you know, already making revenue. So um, that that's when we started being valued on the uh, on the revenue, but also uh, the fundamentals of the business. Um, right. How many providers are being engaged with the solution? How much value are they able to drive for their organizations to make sure that uh, we have a sustainable model? Um, what's the margin on any of these implementations that we do at the gross margin? And um, and what's the uh, what's the growth versus um, any churn that we have? And I think that's where you need to adapt it to the type of business that you're in. Um, right. I think I, I have a lot of um, friends, uh, founders that are um, in a more of a traditional tech and for them it's just growth and they're yeah. happy to operate with a 30 or 40 percent um, annual turn. Um, I think that our pace of growth is uh, slower because it's healthcare, but at the same time having negative turn is something that um, adds to the value. And um, that was these were the main considerations also for our Series B that we raised more recently um, yeah. alongside some of the big partnerships that we've done. So um, we the last year or year and a half, we had developed relationships with really large organizations where we were just getting in, and that holds a lot of potential. So that was also something that uh, Series B investors took into account when um, valuing the business. Got it. And in terms of, like, for example, the due diligence process, did you experience the process being a little bit heavier as you were maturing a bit more in the financing cycle, or it was always, you know, as burdensome as, uh, you know, regardless of the stage? Uh, definitely the Series A was much more intense with the seed round. Um, I think the seed round happened a lot more organically where we started with a few angels, which barely do any diligence. They just want to get to know you and if they trust you there. First angels, they are not investing in the business. They're investing in the, uh, in the founders. So uh, there was almost no um, business diligence at the beginning. Um, then we had a couple of funds who... Again, seed stage funds, they're also investing mostly in the person, but they also see the people who have invested before as, uh, as a very good endorsement to the business. So I would say seed round, um, um, a lot less diligence than the Series A. The Series A was the first time where we went through serious business diligence, legal diligence. We had to do a lot of um, cleanup, things that we had never done uh, in terms of structure before, and that you know, for the B, we already had gone through that one. So we had the infrastructure uh, more in place. But, um, but yeah, as you say, Alejandro Series B was um, even more detailed business diligence um, with each of the funds. And one of the things that was interesting is we saw in our Series A how our um, um, lead investor did the diligence and a lot of the um, co-investors um, pick, it, pick it back in that diligence, while in the Series B, um, all investors wanted to do their own diligence. So, yes, they were sharing um, some of their analysis, but um, everybody wanted to take their own look, get references from customers and partners, get to know the team. So we we sort of had to go through multiple diligences um, as part of the Series B because we were getting um, um, several groups to lead the investment. Got it, got it. And, and man, those, those financing rounds, I mean, they, they kind of like take an emotional toll and, and it's a roller coaster of, of, of emotions. I mean, I guess that, for example, in, in your guys' case, uh, how, how, how did you deal with it? I mean, 
<clears throat> what, what, what was the process of really dealing with that with that level of stress? Yeah, it's uh, it's always incredibly stressful because uh, you're not fundraising as a full-time job. At the same time as you're doing the fundraise, you're still doing sales, you're still doing implementations, you're still recruiting, you're still managing operations. So it's not like um, anything stops. Um, and then you have to add um, fundraising on top of it, which always involves a lot of traveling, um, meeting investors on both coasts. For me personally, I, uh, I work out a lot. I found out that through the last two rounds, um, the time where we were doing fundraise, I've been more uh, more committed to uh, early workouts, running, swimming, and just uh, working out at the gym. That's how I got my, my energy and how I got yeah. to disconnect. This last one was particularly intense for me because of all the weeks that a year has, uh, the, our Series B closed the same week that I was getting married. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine the stress. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, on top of uh, racing around, uh, I was also planning a wedding and dealing with um, a lot of um, family members traveling internationally and all that. So uh, it got very, very intense. Yeah, got it, got it. And for example, in this uh, in this last round, I mean, in that process, did you guys were you guys just like uh, heavy focused on on just closing it with with the investors that ended up coming on board or? Was it a competitive process where you had other term sheets and it was more about deciding, you know, which one, which one was the right partner? I think it was, um, it was a little bit of both. So we, um, we started the process in the fall and um, started talking to a lot of the investors. A lot of them, we already had relationships. Um, for health IT, it's typically a very specific type of fundraise. Um, what we found is that for a business like ours, which is, rather complex. Um, it's dealing with providers and payers. Um, investors outside of healthcare are not as comfortable. So um, it's, a, it's a much more limited um, set of um, funds that are that are going to look into a deal like ours. Yeah. And um, we had a lot of interactions. Um, we obviously had, um, you know, some groups that we really had as, uh, as favorites and um, other groups that we were also interested in, in talking to them. I think we were... Um, driving towards the groups that we wanted, and we put a lot more focus on them. So there were many groups who expressed interest in investing, but they were either not the right fit or we weren't aligned on the uh, structure of the deal. Um, some right. of those, uh, you know, non-market um, or non-standard um, terms, we wanted to have a clean term sheet. So we, um, we didn't spend a lot of time with the groups that had uh, said, that they would want to have um, more structure um, in their in their deals. Yeah. Um, eventually, we found what I would describe as a rock star um, lineup of investors. If you ask anyone who closed around, they'll probably say that because you know who's gonna who's not gonna say nice things about their current investors. But sure. we were able to close around with uh, was co-led by um, HLM Ventures, which is. Um, Unquestionably, one of the leading um, health IT funds uh, based in Boston. They've, um, they're healthcare super experts. They've done many great deals, and they've been incredibly helpful. And then we also um, had um, Optum Ventures, which is um, Optum is the uh, technology arm of United Healthcare, and they they have a venture fund. Great partners, incredibly strategic, so it's unquestionable value. And we also brought um, along Centene um, Corporation, which is um, a big group. Um, uh, conglomerate of health plans, so incredibly aligned with um, the the work that we're doing. 
And, yeah. um, you know, when we started the fundraise, I, this would have been the dream, um, set of investors. And it was a very long process. Um, it, it, it took a lot longer than we thought. Uh, we um, almost ran out of money, which seems to be a, a trend for all of our fundraise where <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we push it really hard, uh, with a runway. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, it was, um, it was a very, very good outcome. That's great. That's great. And, and, and for example, with these investors that ended up coming on board, what was really the process of finding them? So the, um, the first group um, that we signed the, um, the first term sheet, um, we had met one of their partners a few years ago when we were um, doing a Blueprint Health, um, Health IT Incubator in New York. And more recently, we had reconnected um, with them through another investor. So that was the first group. They uh, accelerated us through the process. Um, they looked at the business, and very quickly they invited us to um, um, present at their partners' meeting. Um, funny story, because they're based in Boston. I was taking a super early train and when I was um, from New York, and when I was in, on the train, yeah, there was a big storm and a tree fell in the tracks. Oh so the God. train stopped in New Haven and they said, we're going to turn around and go back to New York. And I was like, well, this is a fund that we're really interested in bringing on board. I can't miss this meeting. Started to look at flights. I ended up finding a zip car by the station, got on the zip car, drove like crazy to make it to the meeting. Got there like, you know, 20 or 25 minutes late. Um, my co-founder had started the meeting, but we were able to make it, meet the partners, uh, meet the team do our presentation and uh, start what ended up being a great relationship. So uh, uh, it, it worked out really well. And then through them, once they, um, once we had signed a term sheet with them, we, we um, started to work in partnership to, um, to bring along other investors. And they were very helpful making the introductions. I think we still had to do all the work. It's uh, yeah. these guys wanted to do their own diligence. We had to meet partners and both co's. So it was still a long process. But sitting down with um, with them and strategizing around, right? We have all these other folks that are interested. Where do we want to focus our energies to um, to to try to close around um, in the next um, couple of months? Um, and that was that. That was in partnership with them. Got it. I mean, I think that that was definitely a good way to pass the the famous thing that people call as the layer of of social proof, no? Because there's a lot of of founders out there that think that. Aligning more meetings may result on, on, you know, maybe like cold emailing or going on LinkedIn and stuff like that and just messaging people left and right is going to, to get them more meetings. But, you know, definitely it's more meetings, but doesn't mean more money. So, you know, I, I think that that was definitely a really, really great way to get that social proof emotion. Yeah, I think one of the, uh, one of the mistakes that we, that we made in this fundraiser actually in between the Series A and the Series B is that, we thought about fundraise as um, as a one-off thing, right? You need a you need to raise money, then you go to the market, you raise, and you go back 100% to the business. You actually have to keep doing it. You have to be doing it all the time. You have to keep the relationships. You want them to get to know your business, and you want to keep them up to up to speed, so that when you are actually looking to raise funds, you don't have to spend all the time educating people, building a relationship because. You're always going to be doing it against the clock. So I think when we did our Series A, we we're very happy, and then we we stopped talking to investors pretty much until two years later when we were starting the process for the Series B. And yeah. I wish we had had some more 
continuity. Even if you're not actively fundraising, just keep in touch, keep them up to speed, keep building relationships because um, eventually they'll become very, very helpful. You know, that's such a great point. I, um, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of, of, for example, like the um, investor newsletters, and not just for the existing ones, but then, for example, for other potential ones that you think might make sense to, to bring on board where you're maybe sharing like milestones or KPIs, how those are progressing over time, and maybe, you know, sharing them on a quarterly basis so that you're keeping people in the loop. I've seen a lot of people do that. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really good practice. Uh, we started doing it after we learned the lesson the hard way, um, and then on top of that, we also um, you know for for the people that we respect, um, that we have a lot of respect for in the industry, and, um, and we know that we get a lot of value. We we meet with them regularly now, even if they're not our investors. Um, there are some funds that they have such an amount of experience that just by um, Checking in with them every three or six months, we get a lot of value, and that's also a nice way to keep them engaged and up to date with what's happening on the business. Got it. So I guess I guess without really going into into much detail, because you know this is this is this is I don't think this is public. But how aligned were you on valuation, for example, with with your co-founder and and maybe with other investors, and what was really driving the the minimum check that that you guys were shooting for in the in the round? Um, I think we we were pretty aligned on valuation. Um, I mean, there's the, there's obviously a range where you know you say this is where I would like it to be. This would be even better. You know, this is a, a little less, but I'd be happy with it. I think one thing that's um, uh, important is that um, both Gil and I looked at the deal as the the total package. So. Um, there are many groups that focus on the valuation, but then you know you're taking bad terms. For us, it was actually more important to have a clean term sheet than, um, than just focusing on pushing up the valuation. Um, this is something that um, became a thing in our Series A, where we had a really good term sheet for a lot of money, but they had a structure that we didn't like. Um, there was something with uh, participating preferred. They had some um, uh, dividends. They had some warrants tied to revenue milestones. A lot of complexity that made it look more more of a... Um, um, private equity deal than a, than a VC deal. I actually remember uh, calling you, Alejandro, around that time to discuss and you saying, like, that doesn't make sense at all as a, as a term yeah. sheet. Um, and we ended up going with, uh, with a term sheet that was a lot cleaner, um, you know, straight, uh, plain vanilla terms. And that, that is something that makes your life easier in the future because it's when you're doing a series A and it's $4 million, you, you know, it's easy to think, it's it's not that bad. It's not the end of the world. If I have four million dollars of participating preferred, it's uh it's not that much. But once right. you've done that, the series B investors I wanna want at least the same term. So, you know, we ended up raising um almost um fourteen million dollars that we would have now almost eighteen million dollars of participating preferred and that yeah. starts to become a lot more meaningful. So we've uh, we've always optimized for let's get clean terms. Um, valuation has to be has to be accurate because it's um, we don't want to get obviously we don't want to get um, completely diluted, but um, having a valuation that's just inflated it's not helpful either because at some point you're going to face the challenge how do I turn a return for my investors how do I make sure that when I hire employees they're getting equity that will be will be valuable um, as opposed to just um, you know hyped up uh, um, stock options so I think we were very realistic around 
you know, let's find a valuation that works for all parties and make sure that the total structure with the other terms and the partner um, fits our, um, you know, our, our, our values and our goals as a company. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's interesting that you mentioned this because, you know, I always, I always share with founders that you should not be thinking about the present when you're raising money. It's all about thinking about the next round, uh, even though it sounds crazy, but when you're raising and you're in negotiations, you should always think about the subsequent round of financing because whatever you do today is going to impact tomorrow. So I think that, you know, it's much better to, like you said, to, to raise on clean terms because if you, if you're just like trying to apply a band-aid because you know, your runway and your, you know, you may, you may have to shut down your business because you don't have enough cash and you just take the first thing that comes in the door. That's like really applying a band-aid to something that may require surgery uh, later on. So it's, it's, people need to be very careful when structuring this. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you were able to navigate, you know, those terms that you got in the past as well, like doing series A's and that you were able to get something clean. So that's, that's awesome. So I guess in terms of the uh, timeline for, let's say, let's talk about like this last round, for example, how long did it take from the minute you said, okay, it's time to get out there and, and raise some money till the moment that you actually closed the round and you were, you know, having a tequila shot with your co-founder? <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, it felt like it took forever. Um, it took actually a long time. I think we started at the beginning of the fall. And um, the round was closed um, at the end of March. So it's, uh, it's probably about six or seven months overall. Um, I think we started slow. We started having conversations with um, different investors, just, you know, kick, kick the tires uh, at the beginning of the fall. And then the process accelerated a little bit. We, um, we signed the first term sheet um, at the end of December. And, um, and then we, things went on hold for a bit. Um, it was, uh, it was a Christmas break. People were on vacation, um, that, uh, connected with, um, the JP Morgan healthcare conference where, um, all, um, health IT investors are in San Francisco, um, spend the week there. So sort of put things on hold for about three weeks uh, overall. And then we resumed, completed the diligence. Um, and we were, at that point, we had the opportunity to just bring other parties on board, and we could have uh, driven to a much faster uh, closing. But um, there were great investors that were interested, and they wanted to do their own diligence. And that this was the big um, the, um, the, the shocker for me, right? I I thought they will, you know, these, we just finished diligence with this awesome group of investors. These guys will just take their notes and um, and, and and join the round. But that's when they realized they actually wanted to do their own diligence. So it was like doing um, like a fundraise inside the fundraise. So um, through February, we were um, engaging these couple of groups that we really wanted to bring on board. It took them time to do their diligence. And uh, by the end of March is when we uh, when we got um, everything signed. Um, really long process. We, uh, we thought, you know, we started the beginning of the fall and by the end of the year, we'll have the money in the bank. It ended up taking three more months. and um, we hadn't really planned for that, so we were cutting it a little bit short with the runway, but um, but it worked out in the end. Not with a lot of stress, but well, not without a lot of stress, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad it worked out in the end. Got it. Well, that's that's amazing. So I guess uh, the the one thing that comes to mind now is you have 
you're based here in New York City, but you also have operations in Spain. So when you have this, uh, this structure where you have like two offices in, in two completely different countries, did that, uh, have, did that provide or add any concerns towards the investors that you were speaking with? Uh, not a whole lot. They, um, they definitely wanted to look into it and understand why we had um, people overseas. Once they looked into it, they got very comfortable with it. I think that's partially a reflection of uh, the fact that, yes, we have um, employees um, in the U.S. and in Spain, but all of our commercial activity is exclusively in the U.S. So we don't we, we don't we don't have um, um, a commercial operation in Spain. It's just uh, it's just part of the part of the team, part of the technology team that we have remote because um, of the abundance of talent in Spain. So I think that simplified it from the, uh, the investor standpoint that we didn't have uh, we didn't have two revenue generating businesses in different um, different uh, places of the world. Yeah, got it. I mean, I had I remember like in in my case I had the same structure. We had the office here as well in in New York, and then we had an office in Barcelona. And uh, you know, we we really appreciated that because the engineering talent, for example, in Spain, I mean, it, we we saw that it was off the charts. And what we really liked was that people were very loyal, and that you were not dealing with like a revolving door, like what you, for example, encounter in places like New York City, where engineers are jumping like from place to place. Yeah, I, we've we've had very similar experience. Um, or engineers in Spain are next level, incredibly talented, incredibly committed. Um, I think um, it's it's uh, it's hard to find the people that are really good and also very good at um, being making themselves part of a culture uh, when they're remote most of the time. But we've had an awesome experience. In fact, we uh, keep growing the team um, the team there and. Every time they come to the office in New York, everybody's incredibly excited. They have, you know, full agenda <laughs> day and That's night awesome. every time they're here. And uh, I can see how uh, they are incredibly valued and everybody's really impressed with them, with their talent. That's fantastic. And and in terms of like going back to the round and, and to the process, was was it the two of you heavily involved in it or was, or did you guys divide and conquer? Because, I mean, we were talking about the fact that when you're fundraising, investors are still expecting you to execute and to increase the KPIs of the business. So did you guys divide and conquer or, or did you both go at it at the same time? Yeah. Uh, first of all, you're 100% right. And particularly when, um, when, you're, when the deal is long, when it, when it, you know, as I said, we signed the first term sheet in the, the end of December and we closed around at the end of March. So it's not only that, the investors are looking at you. They're also looking at the evolution of the business. And um, you have to keep growing. You have to keep hitting the numbers that you told them you would be doing. So you definitely can't stop executing um, while you're doing the deal. At the same time, they want to meet both of us. So um, I think, you know, my co-founder, Gil, was um, um, a little bit more active than I was, particularly with the um, earlier stage conversations. But once uh, we got into deep diligence or, you know, investors really wanted to look under the hood. They wanted to meet both of us. They spent a lot of time with us. So we had to travel many times to Boston, travel many times to the Bay Area. And once they're, you know, once they're interested in investing, they also want to meet the team. So yeah. it took a lot of um, collective time, which I think is probably the right thing to do from their end. And for us, it was a really fine balance between, you know, what, I, what amount of effort I'm devoting to the fundraise versus just pure execution. 
And the same thing goes uh, for customer references. Every investor would want to talk to your customers, but every prospective customer that's really large also wants to talk to your customer. So it's uh, sort of a scarce resource that uh, you can't um, overburden them with too many reference goals. So I guess it's uh, it's sort of always the same. A lot of competing priorities, and and it's uh, sort of an art to understand how to prioritize and where to spend um, more of your energy. Got it. Got it. So I guess I guess if you could now, like I mean, now you have a now you have been able to obtain like this incredible experience from going through these multiple rounds of financing. So I guess now looking back, if 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 you could give advice to your younger self, you know, that you're about to embark on raising, let's say, like your first round of financing, uh, what, what, what kind of advice would you give to yourself? Um, so definitely have many, many learnings. Um, a few things. Um, I would say focus always on clean terms. Um, it's something that uh, we eventually got to the conclusion, but we spent a lot of time with, um, with deals that would have never been a good fit. Definitely give yourself more more runway. Um, this has been a trend over the last uh, two rounds where we cut it way too short. And you don't want to be negotiating with an investor when you have, you know, weeks of cash in the bank because at that point, you have the urgency, you have the pressure. They don't have any urgency to get the deal done quickly and you're stuck in between a, um, a rock and a hard place. So uh, make sure that you start early enough uh, you budget enough time for this to take longer than you think it will, uh, so that you don't you don't have to be in that tough spot for um, for the negotiation. And then um, be aggressive and, and tell a big vision. I think that's one of the things that yes, we've been able to um, to raise um, um, a lot of money for the business, but I um, I think we could have um, been even even stronger in the fundraise. Um, we always depict. Uh, very uh, realistic um, view of the business, which is positive. But the fact that everybody's pitching an you know hyperinflated um, version of their business, by default, any investor that's listening to a pitch is going to discount anything you tell them. So I think we've been penalized a little bit by the fact that we 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 explain the business exactly the way it is. Uh, investors discount the value of it because that's the uh, the fundraising um, you know standard inflation. And when they actually look under the hood, they're very impressed um, with what we are um, we, we are achieving. But um, but that, that makes the process longer for us. So I think uh, those those three things: look for clean terms, make yourself um, give yourself enough runway to be able to uh, negotiate without pressure, and um, spend a lot of time crafting your story and the vision because you have to get investors excited about your business. I love that. I love that. I mean, I think that really fundraising at the end of the day is all about storytelling. And, you know, when it comes to, to raising money, unfortunately, time is the worst enemy of the founder, right? Because you're running out of cash while time is the best friend of the investor because they get more time to see how you're executing on, on the promises that you gave them when you first met. So Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, Carlos, this has been fantastic. So what, what is the best way for folks that are listening to, to reach out to you if they want to say hi? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, er, anyone can email me. Um, I'm carlos at rubiconmd.com, uh, C-A-R-L-O-S at R-U-B-I-C-O-N-M-D.com. Um, feel free to reach out with any questions. If we can be helpful, we'd love to help other founders that are going through the same journey and hopefully can leverage um, 
a lot of the learnings that we've uh, that we've gathered from uh, all the mistakes we've made in the process. Amazing. Well, Carlos, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us here. Thanks so much, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.